breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode of Reform This. This is the place where you get the real scoop. You get a perspective of an American Muslim patriot, somebody who not only loves America and loves our Constitution and our way of life, but is willing to call a spade a spade, to call out Islamists, to call out not only the militants, but the root cause, those on their way to becoming militant, those that are the underbelly of militant Islam, the political Islamists, the real enemy ideologically from the West. And every week, I pick a few topics, or maybe just one topic, that the media is not covering or is covering and just missing sort of the point. And this week is no different. This week, yep, you probably guessed I might be talking about it uh, on the podcast, the Kurds. What's the real scoop? And if you follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, or if you follow me at the Reform This Radio, Reform This Radio handle, you'll know that I have my opinions on this. And uh, listen, I want to take the episode today to walk through a few things. So first of all, let's do a little primer, if you will. What, 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 who are the Kurds? And I, I'm, I'm actually intentionally going to talk a little superficially about some of these things because this is not supposed to be a long historical take on who the Kurds are or what their issues are. It's not supposed to be a long historical review of the Syrian revolution or a long historical review of Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. But there was a decision made this week in which the Trump administration, President Trump, decided to move troops. He said he wanted to withdraw, but move troops in the name of ending endless wars. So his most recent decision, he claimed, was to withdraw troops from Syria. Now, there was the controversial decision, which we discussed on this program back in December 2018, And when the State Department, Pentagon, and others went into damage control, he declared that ISIS had been destroyed. And in his tweet, he said that he was going to pull out troops out of Syria. We had, uh, at the time, three, 4,000 at the most, if that. And it turned out, after hand-wringing in a few weeks, that he would still leave 1,000 troops there. So... A force reduction, if you look at percentages, were significant. We reduced 50-75%. But removal of troops, the end of endless wars, as he campaigned on, didn't end up happening. We did lose Secretary General uh, Mattis, who left claiming divergence on the policies towards Syria and how to protect American interests. So that was then. And now all of a sudden, what happened this week? Well, the president received a phone call from the authoritarian 
head of a so-called democracy, which has lost its way as a democracy since Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, has been running it. He's the head of the AKP. Remind you that the AKP is the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist, the Ikhwan of the Turkish political system. And Erdogan once famously or infamously described democracy when he was mayor of Istanbul as a train. He said, you get on the train, you get to where you want to go, and then you get off. And that's how he described democracy. And sure enough, that's what he's been doing. He's been imprisoning his enemies. He's been torturing journalists. He has been disappearing tens of thousands of professors. He had a Reichstag fire, which some claim was a coup attempt by the Gulenist movement. And you can debate that if you want. If it was, it was one of the dumbest things ever done. They'd have they'd had nowhere even near the power to do such a thing, and it basically opened the way for Erdogan to do crimes against humanity against those the leaders of the Gulen movement, and they lost most of their assets. But that's just a little bit of the the punctuated history necessary to understand Turkey. Long time, most of us have been calling for. Turkey to somehow be extricated from NATO, and I say extricated because there is no mechanism to have them removed other than if they withdraw themselves. And we saw President Trump months ago being actively involved in making sure they don't get the JETS programs with the F-35s that they were supposed to be receiving, including the parts. And that was a smart move. But what happened this week? So this week, all of a sudden, President Trump gets a call from Erdogan. And we can only guess now that it was an ultimatum that this NATO ally, this NATO ally basically told our president, our commander-in-chief, that he better move his few troops that are in the way in the border with Syria working with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are the Kurdish forces that had done most of the heavy lifting against the, the uh, ISIS militants and also currently still in prison and hold, uh, I think, upwards of 11,000 ISIS militants. And we're only guessing now. Nobody really knows exactly what happened on that phone call with President Trump this week. But Erdogan calls him. We can only guess that Erdogan in some way bullied President Trump or or demanded or basically told him, move your troops or you will be in the way of war. And by the way, fast forward four days later, there were ordinances that went off a few hundred feet from our troops even after they moved. So then... President, go back to the call I was talking about. President Trump hangs up and then tweets a few days later that it's time to end the endless wars and we'll be removing the rest of our troops. And those troops weren't engaged in war. I thought ISIS was decimated and was done back in December. We left them because they serve as a buffer zone 
in many ways, uh, as much as the metaphor may not be right, almost like a DMZ. And even if there's one troop there, one soldier there, a NATO ally will not destroy an entire alliance based on a few soldiers that it wants to go through to get to the Kurds. And as you know, so who are the Kurds? We'll get to that in a second. I want to explain this to you. But the bottom line is then President Trump this week decided to move those troops over out of the way. And I don't care how you describe it. You can only describe it that this provided a green light. Green light so that President Erdogan could then begin his militant bombing operations to decimate the Kurdish troops the Kurdish families and neighborhoods on the Syrian side of the Turkish-Syria border. So he began an offensive. America moves our few troops. We had a 1,000 there. President Trump tweeted that he was going to remove the rest of them. He didn't remove them. He shifted them over. There was no troop reduction. He simply shifted them over so that Turkey could then begin its offensive into Syria. And within three Three days of that offense, you had 60,000 reportedly displaced from the Kurdish community, Yazidi Christian community. With tens, if not over 100 dead, and the numbers are only mounting. And there's been many reports from probably the majority, I would say, of those who have weighed in on this and have been thoughtful about Middle Eastern conflict and politics and wars over the past decade have been very critical of the president's actions, of his decision. The Jacksonian types, if you will, those who are settled in on an American foreign policy that is only when we have a direct threat to our national security are applauding the president. And even those who may not be as Jacksonian are, are saying that they weren't doing anything, that ultimately this is not our area of conflict, that ultimately that uh, this was simply a mirage and a few soldiers should not be sitting in, in as bait to prevent war. But I think that's deceptive. I, I don't think that's the reality. Uh, there are some very thoughtful folks that still came to the defense of President Trump. And I think they gave some valid arguments. Andrew McCarthy, Carolyn Glick, folks I have significant respect for in their foreign policy positions. But I have to tell you, as a Syrian-American, somebody who studied and lived this for some time, I, I don't see... the risk-benefit analysis, the return-on-investment analysis, the strategic analysis of short-versus-long-term benefit, as in any way ending up making sense that we shift our troops over to allow a radical Islamist, neo-Ottoman caliphate leader like Erdogan the green light to do what he wants to do in Syria. Because who's cheering this? As my grandfather in Syria used to say, you always understand the, the 
moral direction of what you do based on often in foreign policy strategically who benefits the most from what, what it does. We hadn't lost, first of all, let's talk about American lives. And as the president did rightly say, one American life is too many. And he then described in detail the horror of American families who have seen their loved ones come back in a coffin with an American flag draped over it. So these emotions are not too high. They're real. And they need to be addressed. But in the entire conflict against ISIS, the Kurds lost ten to 15,000. We lost four in Syria. And since we had the troop reduction, there's been no conflict and there's been no lives lost. Now, you look at some of the commentary about the region. Let's step back and give a little primer. Who are the Kurds? Kurds speak their own language, Kurdish. They're not Arabs. They're Kurdish. Their religion is Sunni Islam. They're Muslims, and they're of the Sunni extraction. So first, when you look at and this is, I know many of you may be aware of all this, but for those who aren't, I want to make sure we're all on the same page so we understand what we're talking about. So the Kurds live in northern Syria. They live in Turkey. They live in Iraq. Some in Iran. And some in Russia. But for the most, the majority of them are in northern Iraq, northern Syria, western Iraq, northern Syria, and Eastern Turkey, southern eastern Turkey. So, if there was a Kurdistan, most of it would be in Iraq and a chunk of Syria and a chunk of Turkey. I have to tell you, I have never been in favor of a Kurdish state. Throughout the Syrian revolution, I worked closely and was very, very sympathetic to the Kurdish community and felt that their identity, their autonomy was essential to a federal Syria, and a federal Syria was one of the solutions to what I thought at the time when I naively thought that it would remain a civil war and not be poisoned by the Iranian and Russian infiltration of troops and weapons and the absence of American influence and then radicalization of the Saud by the Saudis and Turks. But ultimately, I thought a federal Syria made more sense, and as did most of the Kurds that I know and respect. But for the first time this week, as we see American policy, simple policy, moving troops and on bended knee appeasing to Erdogan, that that policy basically has said, we again, we again abandon them. They were abandoned, remember, Historically, repeatedly, the most poignant times were when the last significant use before the Syrian war of chemical weapons in the Middle East was the use of chemical weapons by Saddam Hussein, another Sunni Muslim with a Sunni Muslim army that decided to use chemical weapons on the Kurds in Iraq because they were posing too much of a threat to the tyrannical operations of the Ba'ath of Saddam Hussein. 
Then fast forward to the American invasion of Iraq. And most every American soldier to a T tells me that the safest part of post-Saddam Iraq for Americans was in the Kurdish-controlled areas. Now, does this make them angels? Nobody said they're angels. The Middle East is a tribal mess of various shades of corruption, religious radicalism, Arab nationalism, fascism, and kleptocracy. But some of the silver linings had related to the Kurdish areas. And I still ask for examples. You know, there's this debate, and it's not a debate. The PKK in 1996 or 8 in the Clinton administration was named a terror organization. Now, part of that naming of them as a terror organization, as Michael Rubin from the AEI has laid out uh, very uh, intelligently in a number of pieces he's been writing for some time, this was related to the affinity that the Clinton administration and then many American administrations have had, both of both parties with the Turkish government. And now with Erdogan, I would call them the Turkish regime, the Islamist regime. So as a result, there is no bigger animosity in the Middle East than that between the Turks and the Kurds. It's a generational, it's a centuries-old rivalry of hate and wars. And at times the Turks would radicalize them and let them do their dirty work against the Armenians and others. So you see sectarian ethnic attacks between many different factions. But I would tell you, and as other troops have told me in Iraq, as our American troops were there, there's the PKK, which is the Turkish variety that might be a bit more radicalized. And then there's the YPG or the Peshmerga. And that the Peshmerga, again, while they might have their elements of radicalism, at the end of the day, there's not a single American soldier that ever anybody's reported that has been hurt by a Peshmerga or of the Kurdish organizations in in Iraq let alone in Syria. I don't believe I've heard of any. Now, some people will say, well, what values do they share with us? These are Marxist-Leninist radicals of the communist variety. Now, again, read Michael's stuff, and you'll see that he has good reporting that that's not exactly true, that they may have had that in their origins, but they have been liberalizing and modernizing. But... Again, I'm not going to hang my hat on them being Jeffersonian Democrats. And there are certainly known elements of the Kurdish leadership that have socialist communist tendencies. And that's the region. My grandfather, my family escaped Syria because of the Soviet influence in Syria, because of the communist infiltration of that region. And thus, if you look at Ba'athism in Iraq or in Syria, they learned their military population control from the Soviets, from Russian influence. But if you want to understand the Kurds, you know first that they're a racial identity, 
and that their faith is Muslim. They are Sunni Muslim, but the reason they've never been radicalized as Islamists who commit suicide bombs or jihad is because their unificating, uh, unifying identity is as Kurds, that they have a national identity. But it seems that when you don't have a governmental nation state, you end up being on the menu generation after generation instead of having a seat at the table. And when President Trump, when the Trump administration brought the people to the table that have a stake in the region, the Kurds were absent. Apparently, Erdogan makes a phone call. Apparently, the Russians, who we communicate in the area with, who apparently the Iraqi government, which is now basically slowly being taken over by Iran, as Syria has, apparently the Assad regime, who we don't really have at our table, but yet is part of the equation because the bottom line is, as Andy McCarthy points out, doesn't matter what you say about the area that Turkey's bombing into, but that's Assad's regime's land, Syrian people's land, who lost this revolution so far in the last nine years or eight years. And they're one of the ones at the seat at the table. But the Kurds don't have a seat at the table because they don't have a nation. So I have to tell you, with the loss of the revolution, with the lack of success and the influence of the revolution, you can't help but say maybe the Kurds need to be given a land that they carve out. Because right now, what happened after President Trump shifts the troops, the Kurds simply got sympathy. They got words of sympathy that, yes, they've helped us get rid of ISIS. Yes, they helped stabilize the regions that they controlled in Iraq, giving us a, a area of uh, often a safe haven in which it prevented the deep concerns that we had with the non-Kurdish Sunni areas in which Al-Qaeda and then ISIS ran rampant through the rest of Iraq or in Syria or the Shia-controlled Hezbollah-type terrorist activity from the Khomeinists that also were a threat through the rest of Iraq and now has taken over Baghdad, and yet, still to this day, the safest areas for Americans is the Kurdish areas. So when it comes to all of the Middle East, where we've been fighting wars, where we've had troops deployed, other than Israel, the Kurds have been the strongest allies we've had. And now we're laying them for waste. The president shifts the troops over, says it's about ending endless war, and yet that shift of the troops over away from where the Turks wanted to go in in Kamishli, in that corridor, basically then started the war that's been happening this week and then started the process in which European countries, America, the West is saying, stop, you're going to be sanctioned. They're telling Erdogan, you are going to be sanctioned if you do not stop the offensive operations. And then Erdogan's response was, don't tell me this is an occupation. Don't tell me this is an invasion. Uh, yeah, that's what it was for anybody with three brain cells, but no. And he said, if you keep calling it an occupation, if you keep calling it an invasion, he's going to release three to four million refugees, Syrian refugees into Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the commentary. Those are not statements from a NATO ally. 
So then you had many people saying we should have kicked them out of NATO. Yeah, we should be much stronger. You can, And then they, they give us details that you really can't be kicked out of NATO because there's no such rules present. Well, whatever, convene NATO, have a, a, a general assembly meeting, and, and then revisit, reestablish the charter, and then say, oh, whoops, you guys don't fit. Rebuild the charter. Rebuild the League of Democracies that should exist as a primary organizing influence rather than the feckless UN. And President Trump, to his credit, has been trying to get, anyway, people, uh, uh, countries and leaders to pay their fair share in NATO, and he's been viewed as being too harsh on them. And yet, where's that harshness when we need it on Turkey? Is that harshness perceived that that would then trigger a war? Do we really think so? To those who say that President Trump did well by saving us from a war from Turkey or saving us from remaining on a, as a tripwire for a conflict, I, I would reject that. I do. I, I do not think that uh, Turkey, with all its bluster, if it tried to call President Trump and call his bluff on the presence of our troops and the way of the operations they want to do in that area, if they tried to call us bluff, then we should have pushed back. What if North Korea called our bluff on South Korea? Should we didn't pull our troops away? Is President Trump just really a paper tiger? All the troops that this week are saying they're so upset and embarrassed that they're abandoning their Kurdish, do you think they would have thought it was a too aggressive for us to maintain a relationship that we've established with 15 years of war, of supporting the Kurds who've given thousands of percent more lives than we have? And what does it defend us? Well, they're holding 11,000 ISIS. What if now as Turkey goes in, those troops are re those ISIS militants are released? Do we really think that Turkey also is going to be as anti-ISIS? They are the tip of the spear of what created ISIS. Their ideology as a Muslim, that's why I started at the beginning telling you that Turkey, Erdogan is the caliphate. He is the neo-Ottoman form of the caliphate, and he may have ethnic div ethnic divisions and problems against the Sunni Arab Islamists of the Salafi jihadists, but he is a Turkish version of the Salafi jihadists. This is what they're doing. His discussion that the minarets of Turkey are the swords of Islam. What is that? That's Salafi jihadism. His discussion, the sermons this week about, about the war is described not just as a simple defensive operation against a terror group. That might be how they describe it to the West. But internally, the 80,000 mosques in Turkey that sing from the same hymnal Every Friday that the government gives them to read the state-sponsored sermon, which is not a democracy, but that's what they call it. That sermon this week was about how the Turkish state, basically the neo-Ottomans, the Islamic resurgence of power in the region is being reclaimed and the Kurdish enemy is being defeated. Every one of their sermons read that. And there was ver religious language being infused with a waving of swords and a waving of, of arms of victory. 
A CNN reporter from CNN Turkey was just jumping in joy as he saw Kurdish neighborhoods being bombed. Innocents being killed. All because President Erdogan called President Trump's bluff and President Trump then responded by basically telling us that this was part of what he campaigned on was to end endless wars and pull our troops out. But we have troops in many places, either related to Korean War, related to World War II or elsewhere, that they're not in war. Their presence simply prevents war because our presence is a threat. Our presence is a stabilizing factor. Okay, pull our troops out of Qatar. Why do we have a base there? That is the enemy of the United States. We should not have a base, and there's no war, but pull our troops out of there. That's what I think we should do. Why do we have Saudi allies? Why do we have a, a, a military relationship with the Saudis and bases? They're fighting a war in Yemen. We could be at risk for entering the Yemen-Saudi war. You can make tons of arguments that have the same type of circular logic in which you explain away troop movements that aren't about ending wars, that aren't about retracting, but simply appeasement of a request from a regional bully that sees an opening. And so what's happening? What is Erdogan? Forget American, I think, lack of long view here. What's Erdogan want? Well... This week, I'll remind you also another thing that happened was an Iranian oil tanker was hit with two missiles. So the back and forth, the hot, not the hot war, but the warm conflict between the Iranians and the Saudis is beginning to heat up. And again, I think American strength needs to be inserted. Because if these guys think that we're going to sit back and do nothing and retract... They're going to continue to push because Iran now is in control of Baghdad. They've got in their back pocket Assad with Russia working with them, and they're looking towards Lebanon where Hezbollah is running the show. And the Sunni countries are rekindling their relationship with not only with Israel but with the United States now thanks to a bit more of a strategic approach by America than we did under Obama, which had a... a, a grotesque fealty to the Khomeinists. But this conflict between Iran and Saudi I don't think is going to go away if America is perceived as exceedingly weak and they continue to probably now move more aggressively towards obtaining nuclear capabilities. So remember, the relationship with Turkey and Iran is improving. And I don't think that's a coincidence that as we are distracted with Iran and Saudi, Turkey, who's working and has fealty with Qatar and Iran closely with Russia, is seeing this as an opportunity. Now, the red herring in all of this is Turkey plays both sides of the fence with Assad. On the one hand, it first thought that Assad was going to be leaving and put all of its cards into the pro-Islamist, pro-Brotherhood, pro-ISIS, pro-Al-Qaeda, pro-radical Islamist, pro-Jihadist side of the revolution. 
And thus you saw the secularists decimated. You saw normal moderate neighborhoods in Syria decimated by both Assad and the Turkish Qatari arm of radicalization. And you saw a shift then as the revolution died off. Erdogan reached back out to Assad as the relationship with the United States started to deteriorate. And he strengthened his relationship with Russia, which always has to happen if you're going to get closer to Assad. And thus Iran also. So Erdogan's playing all sides. And at this point, back to the primer, back to the basics on Kurds. The Kurds are an ethnic minority in all these countries. The Kurds are not Arabs, but they're Sunni Muslims. So the religion is not one of difference with the Sunnis, but the Shia of the Assad regime, of the Khomeinis, of the Iraq-majority Shia, of Lebanese Hezbollah, the Shia detest the Kurds because they're Sunnis, because they're not Arabs, because they're not Persian. So for multiple reasons, the, 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 the Shia militants, theocrats, want to see the Kurds destroyed. The Turks want to see them destroyed not because they are also Sunni Muslims, but because they're Kurds, because they are Kurdish and they reject their ethnicity, they reject their national identity. And this is a long historic conflict that's been played over and over. And now with the weakening of the revolution, with the Assad regime economically near collapse, Erdogan has an opportunity. He took in three, four million Sunni refugees, which empowered his voting base in Turkey in an election that was uh, in an election process perennially that he's fraught with losing. And who this week is remained silent, and not only silent, but the Syrian American Council, the Muslim Brotherhood's arm, the Syrian arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, if you will, here in America, sympathetically, at least policy-wise, puts out a piece supposedly from one of their millennials in a Colorado newspaper, basically saying, enough is enough. This, we should congratulate, we should love the fact that Turkey's moving into Syria because that would be the best way to get rid of Assad and to get rid of ISIS is to have Turkey take over the future of Syria. Well, <laughs> who's going to say that but brotherhood folks, Islamists who want who don't really care about any national identity or Syrian identity. All they care about is Islamic State hegemony, whether it's Turkey or the Muslim Brotherhood of the Middle East. They don't care. National identities are tools for them to work together and form caliphates. And that's what we're seeing from Syrian American Council, the silence, the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Hamas, Palestinian Brotherhood arm. A lot of these arms of the Ikhwans, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, are, are basically cheering this on, telling you more evidence that this was a bad move. So, you know, I get it. I get it. We don't want our troops involved 
in historical conflicts. But there are many examples in which I don't hear Americans clamoring to bring back our troops in other areas where there was no conflict. And when a NATO ally pushes us out of a region because they want to invade into a country because of a desire for ethnic cleansing, I think that shows that we are no longer feared. That we no longer stand by our allies. What is this going to do to our reputation? President Trump says, oh, we'll still make alliances. Others say it's not a big deal. Uh, I think it is a big deal. And last, I want to end sort of strategically. What do we see strategically was in it for us? Is this still more just sort of band-aids and at some point we're going to have to pull out? And and yes, I agree with many of those who said that this was the dealt, this was the cards that President Trump was dealt by one of the most horrific foreign policy administrations in the last hundred years, which was President Obama. I agree with that. So if you're dealt a bad hand, you just fold them and get the hell out of there. That's actually probably one of the most reasonable arguments for what President Trump did. But A, that's not how he laid it out. This happened after a call from Erdogan, a belligerent call, and now you see them making religious calls for caliphate and for Islamic resurgence and revivalism that that is part of the narrative that, that is not why we're moving our, we removed our troops. We removed our troops to get out of the way of Turkey. There's no doubt about that. So that changes that let's just fold our hand and get out reason. But the long-term strategy, I would tell you whatever that strategy might be, preventing Turkish expansion, Turkish containment is very important. Qatari containment is very important, as many have called for. Khomeini's containment is very important. As you contain these and you hope that the Iranian revolution takes hold, as you hope that Qatar economically is isolated, as you hope that Assad continues to shrink and the ISIS near decimation, and they, they still exist, by the way, this this trope that they've been de- defeated completely is wrong. Yeah, they're 98% of what they, uh, smaller than what they used to be, but they're not completely gone. So I hope I've added a little clarity. The long-term strategy, I think, should be intermittent containment, and then we need to have an offense. And that offense would not be military. That offense would be a beginning of a ideological revolution to help those who share our ideas, to begin civil society changes from Tunisia to Morocco to to Saudi, to the Emirates, to areas where we have alliances that we can build on. And just as Al Jazeera shifted and filled the vacuums in the Middle East with Islamism, we could then create something similarly or or help infuse something similarly as effective as Al Jazeera, but perhaps from the Emirates or perhaps from somewhere else, from an ally's place that would begin to take the offense on these issues. And part of that offense would be empowering the importance of a strong Kurdish community and maybe beginning to figure out how they can 
begin the seeds of a state. I get it. Who's going to give up their land? Iraq? Syria? Turkey? No, not Turkey, probably in the least. Syria? Maybe. Maybe that's where the first Kurdistan would come from. Iraq? Probably not, but but uh, it's probably the most functional autonomous Kurdish area right there. The strongest, at least. That's where most of the military training is coming from. So I think we can't deny that strategically our interests would have been served. I think the dismissal of that. So there's the strategic offense that I just talked about. Defensively, ISIS will come back. Hezbollah will become much stronger with the Khomeinist spread of their militancy in the area. So at some point, as the Assad regime gets stronger, as Russia infuses more more strength in that area, I think you will find that the threats to us will grow. Syria is a nexus of ethnic, religious, sectarian conflict that I believe some presence for intelligence, some presence for pushback and diversity in the region can help. our antennas, our information, and help us diffuse things over there before it comes over here. As somebody pointed out on Twitter this week, you ask a poll how many people want us to bring back our troops, you're going to get 60-70% say yes. You ask a poll, do you want to fight recurrent ISIS there or here or in Europe, as we saw with the many attacks and threats? that still exist, they see over there, same percent. So it's how you ask the question. Endless wars, nobody wants that. Were they fighting an endless war? Majority say no, they weren't anymore. We were done. In the last tweet barrage in December 2018, when President Trump said he was decreasing it, and we still left troops there, even though he said at that time we were going to pull them all out. So as you see, ladies and gentlemen, the Kurds deserve our loyalty, as they've given us so much of theirs. The region deserves strategy. A quarter of the world's population is Muslim. They're not going to become stable overnight or even into the next generation. And the Islamists will continue to gain ground unless we have an offense. Always an honor to be with all of you. Let me know. Engage me on Twitter. Engage me at Dr. Zudi Jasser or Reform This Radio. Always a pleasure to see you spread this podcast, share it with your friends, and subscribe at Blaze Radio Podcast. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.